0: Uh, We've been in a series since Easter. Resurrecting the rest of life. The rest of life. Not just life on Sunday, but everything else in life. Work, for example. Something needs to be resurrected, needs to enjoy the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. We've talked about parenting. How does parenting uh, become not just Something that happens out there, but becomes something that we all participate in. And really not just parenting, but, but any kind of interaction with people. And we saw that, that we um, live and, and collapse the secular and the sacred, so that every part of our life is Christian life. That we don't, we don't make a separation between what happens here and what happens outside. Uh, last week, we, ta- we began a, a, a sub-series in the series... On resurrecting a digital world. Last week we talked about your personal brand. Talked about, um, really social media was the target. But as uh, Dave Bacon pointed out to me after the sermon, I mean really anything, any, any part of your life where, uh, you know, it's about you and, and people look at you and they realize that you're about you. That any part of that, that, that has to be resurrected. It really, uh, we take after the apostle Paul whose personal brand was about Jesus. That Paul disappeared. Um, when he was successful, and that his, every every piece of, of, of all the words that came from his lips directed us to Christ, and that we too could be like that online and then in the rest of our lives. Well, this week, we're continuing that resurrecting a digital age, but we're taking a step back. Uh, so for those of you who are just, you know, you're like me, where you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm not really interested in the Internet that much. I mean, I like Google because I like to find things out, but I, yeah, the pictures and the social media, that's not really me. Um, and so last week, you were just kind of falling asleep being like, what, is there something for me here? Well, uh, this week we're going to kind of st- take a step back, more of a, tele like, was it telescoping? No, the opposite of telescoping. Kind of a macro look at really, I mean, social media and the internet and computers are really a, a function, a small part of technological advance and technology. And I would suggest to you that we live in a culture where we are impacted by technology in ways that it's uh, difficult even for us to comprehend, Because it is so thoroughly a part of the first world west. And so what is the Christian's response? What is our relationship to technology? Technology in its barest sense. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But in order to talk about technology, we have to talk about the beginning. And so if you would stand, please, and refer to your note sheets. Let's read today's text together. This is from Genesis 3, 14 to 19. So Yahweh God said to the serpent, because because you have done this, and we'll talk a little bit about this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust, dirt, all the days of your life. And I will put war, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed The New King James capitalizes that second seed to kind of get us to look at perhaps Jesus in the future, that Jesus will be the final um, warrior in this battle. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his keel. You'll crucify Jesus, but you know in the end, he will conquer death and conquer you. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, because you heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shouldn't eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, even as you eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you die, return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, dust you are, to dust you shall return. Please be seated. It's a cheery text. There's, there's a lot of... It's an upper, you know? So it's, it fits really in with our culture, you know, where it, you gotta be upper all the time. So you read this, and then you're like, oh, good news, anybody? Yeah, it's a fun one. Uh, and because you've done this, well, the context is, I mean, and most of you probably know this you, if you've been in church long enough, you have a, at least a pretty good sense of the, the Garden of Eden story. But basically, the outline is something like this. God uh, creates um, Adam... And he gives Adam a vocation, right? He says, Adam, here's your job. You're going to go out and you're going to name the animals. You're going to have dominion, mastery, power over the world in order to cultivate it, right? So you're going to go out and you're going to be kind of the gardener of the universe, right? And uh, Adam's going along and as he's doing this, he just, uh, he just, he's not enough for the task. And God looks and says, you need a helper, right? A helper. And uh, the Hebrew there for helper is the same word uh, you get in the Psalms. So when when uh, the psalmist says, Lord, you are my helper. You know, Lord, you are my strength. And the idea is, that the psalmist by himself or herself is not able to do what needs to be done. And yet, yet with God's help, and with God at the psalmist's side, the, uh, the psalmist becomes powerful enough, equal to the task of whatever lies before him or her. And the same thing happens with Adam. Adam is looking out. There's this huge, you know, wide open world. Maybe the Garden of Eden is kind of like their base or something like that. And Adam's going to go out and, and continue the work of naming the, anim- uh, the animals and cultivating, um, uh, the, the, the land, and it, that's a huge task, it, it, more than any one person could possibly uh, handle. And so he needs a helper, someone with whose help he can do what needs to be done. Maybe it is that Adam has certain strengths, but he also has certain weaknesses, right? And so God uh, creates Eve out of the, the rib, the woman out of his rib, uh, to, to complement him, to give a, uh, a sort of counterpoint to his power and his uh, abilities and to his weaknesses and his lacks. And so that the two of them together form a team, as it were. And this team is able to do what needs to be done. Well, there is one rule. It's not all fun and games. And you may remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting, if you read the text, uh, God never tells Eve, right? God tells Adam. He says, Adam, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and presumably Adam relates this to Eve, and then Eve is uh, tempted by the serpent. And we learn later in the uh, um, the New Testament that the serpent um, is in some way the agency of the enemy, the devil, um, and the serpent convinces the woman to eat this, uh, the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She does, and God is very upset. Well, it's a, it, it's a kind of a weird story because you you have to wonder. I mean, so you're raising kids, or you're dealing with children in in uh, what? Sunday school, or you're teaching them, and you're you're trying to you you teach them right from wrong, right? I mean that's kind of an important part of growing up. Um, and presumably Adam and Eve don't know this; they don't have this yet. They're innocent. They're in the garden. There are no there is no evil in the universe. And there's this tree over there that promises, if they eat it, to give them this gift, the ability to discern between good and evil. And you, like the like Saint Augustine, might think, well. That's kind of a good thing. We, we need that gift. We need to know uh, the difference between good and evil if we're going to navigate through the world. And so it might be that the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a bad thing. The problem is, is that the fruit of that tree is meant to be taken when God gives it. Right? And God hasn't given it. God says, you know, you, that, that's not for you. Maybe yet. I mean, who knows? Um, Maybe it's the case that that eating from that tree will at some point be a part of human life. But for right now, Adam and Eve, I want you to do your thing, have your paths directed by me, let me determine what your life looks like, and then eventually, maybe you'll be ready to be like the angels, right? Because the angels know the difference between good and evil. And we learn in Hebrews that human beings are a little less than the angels. But presumably that might be something we share with them. Well... Human beings, um, they, hear, they hear what the serpent, serpent says. The serpent tells Eve, he says, um, you know, if you do this, you'll be gods, or you'll be like gods. Because one of the things that separates the gods from us is they know good and evil, right? Right, Eve? Right, so you should do this, and then you'll be like God. Don't you want to be like God? Doesn't God want you to be like him? And, um, you know, Eve says, well, yeah, I think so. And things go badly. Eve eats, Adam eats, all of humanity is cursed. Uh, we're all doomed to death. Um, yeah. Well, what is the problem? The problem, of course, is that human beings have uh, chosen their own path. Right? They've decided I'm going to be the one who determines when I do what I want to do. I want to be like God. And not only do I want to be like God, I want to be like God on my terms. I want to be the one who decides when I'm going to be like God. I I don't want to wait. I want it now. And then we get to our text. Um, there's a part where they, they eat from the, the tree. They realize they're naked. I'm not sure what to make of that, but. Maybe they realize that nakedness is evil. It's something they didn't know before. But at any rate, um, they, they need to be clothed. They're hiding from God. God finds them. He's like, what have you done? And then he says, that's it. It's punishment time. And we get to what I've termed in your note sheets, the so-called curse. Well, what are the elements of the curse? I'm going to skip over all the parts that refer to um, the serpent because... I, that's a whole other sermon. That's a sermon about the victory of Jesus. And that's not what we're doing today. We're doing technology today. Um, but I will note, uh, note the things that happened to, uh, to Adam and Eve. And I want to suggest to you that this is the first thing in your note seats that the consequences of disobedience uh, effectively reverse Adam and Eve's ability to be as gods. Okay? What God commands in this uh, so-called curse effectively reverses Adam and Eve's ability to be as gods. The issue here is that God is coming in and he's putting in something in between Adam and Eve and their pursuit of godhoodness, of, of being godlets. Uh, it's a word that has been developed in theology. Gods, little tiny gods that run around and determine their own paths. That, that the effects of the so-called curse will prevent that from happening. Be a forcible reminder that we'll talk about in a second. They forcibly reminded Adam and Eve that we are creatures, not godlets. That's the second thing in your note sheet. They forcibly reminded Adam and Eve that we are creatures, not godlets. And let's see how that works. The first thing uh, that's that's told to Eve is she'll have massive pain in childbearing. Uh, Neil actually brought this up a couple weeks ago when he talked about work. He noted that the the Hebrew there is greatly increase, indicating that before Adam and Eve disobeyed, there would have been some pain, some frustration in childbirth. But now that that frustration, that pain is going to be overwhelming to the point that if you um, have been a part of a particularly difficult delivery, there is in the midst of the pain, for the woman, a sense of her own mortality. That death is just around the corner. And that if things get a little bit worse than they are, she will not make it. Uh, The pain signals to the woman, this might be the death of you. And of course, we know that oftentimes, and less often in the first world, but oftentimes, especially in the third world and primitive cultures, it is the death of you. Uh, childbearing is a threat. And it often kills. Childbirth is now not something that the woman has mastery over. Childbirth now has mastery over the woman. She's no longer in control. The best she can do is suffer it, endure it for the joy that comes after. She doesn't go into childbearing with power. She goes into childbearing and is exposed as powerless. The second thing that, that God promises Eve is that she will desire after her husband or a man, and that the man will rule over you. This is a, this is a very controversial text. Uh, in the wake of 1960s feminism, women look at this and I'm like,
1: Arrgh!
0: no. Um, in my in my marriage, you know, I'm obviously the one who gets ruled. Uh, or overruled, or whatever. I want to suggest to you uh, first that what's going on here is almost observational. It's that uh, a woman in this culture um, is vulnerable. And we've talked about this a number of times. If, um, and as we'll see, once the curse comes to the ground, Adam's going to have a hard time providing, it's going to be backbreaking labor. And Physiologically, from a biological perspective, women have a much more difficult time surviving, just surviving. And so they need a man. They need somebody who can do the work. And not just a man, but a good one. One who's not lazy. One who's equal to the task. One who can get up to Saddleback Mountain and down from 4 a.m. to 2. I I missed it, guys. I, you know, I wanted to be there. I did. Uh, yeah. But I just, you know, the, the sermon prep. I'm sorry, you know how it is. I tell Scott, man, a four-mile hike, sure, but 16, I haven't done anything physically active in over six years. This would be the death of me, man. Uh, Once you move out of the garden, Eve... There's going to be a disparity in power between you and men. And it's not something that God says is good or bad, by the way. It's just something that will happen because of the way life is. And what this will do to you, Eve, is it will remind you you are not the master of the universe. You are dependent. You are not a little godlet, Eve. You need somebody to protect you. And you know what's awful about that, Eve, is that you find a bad one, he might hurt you. You're entering into a dangerous world now. A world where you're not queen any longer. Uh, actually, um, I just wanted to throw this quote at you. Quote out at you. It's a, it's a, an, sort of a. You know what? We'll wait on that quote because I really like it. All right. Number three: working the land. This is uh, what happens to Adam. Notice, notice, notice that God never curses Adam or Eve. Curses the serpent. Cur- curses the ground. Never curses human beings. Um, Because in that culture, a blessing or a curse is something that follows you all your life. Um, And presumably, if God uh, cursed um, Adam and Eve, then they would not be fruitful. They would not have any chance to move forward in their project. Um, just a side note there. about uh, working in the land, God curses the ground. And what does that mean? It means before, you know, the ground was like when you have the uh, jack and the beanstalk and you drop the, the seed in and boom, you know, you get this huge bean plant that reaches to the sky and you can presumably live off that thing for years, right? That's what the, the ground is like. And yet once the ground is cursed, it no longer so easily just yields the fruit that we need from it, and not only that, but it, you work super hard, and yet what you come up with has thorns, and it's dangerous. It uh, supports animal life that can kill you, right? The ground is no longer your friend. It's something you wrestle with all the days of your life, and if you thought you were in control, Adam, in the garden, you were. You just kind of enjoyed the beanstalk, but now you find out that, gosh, a few weeks, a few months without a good rainfall, your whole family's going to die. In this culture, in this time, in the the, the third world, the primitive, what we think of as primitive culture, everything you do is fraught with the possibility of failure, and failure quickly means death. You are always just one step away from utter catastrophe. And so, Adam, you're no longer the kind of guy who's in control. You're no longer the kind of guy who can just make it happen. You're no longer a master of your universe. You are now subject to your universe. The universe is now more powerful than you, and it can hurt you. It can kill you. The new circumstances after the consequences of their disobedience, the new circumstances of human life deprive men and women of the ability to master the world in which they find themselves. Survival no longer guaranteed constant threat, even as they go about the most basic, fundamental tasks of life—raising children, forming families, providing food and shelter. God has effectively reversed Adam and Eve's ability to be like God's. They're no longer in control. They've now been mastered by the world. Now... You gotta. Oh yeah, yeah that, that's the uh, yeah. You gotta think about how crazy it is. All right, we live in 2014, right? So a long time has passed. I want you to think about those those things uh, that God did in the curse, or the so-called curse. And I want to suggest to you that because of science, we've almost neutralized all of them. You don't think that's awesome? I mean, God says, "Oh, I did this," and we're like, "No, we're better." Think, no, seriously, think about this. Think about what we've done. Okay, um, in both of Erin's uh, deliveries, she's had an epidural. Now, I'm not going to say that epidurals have made childbearing fun, but they have dramatically changed the experience to the point that the the overwhelming, you know, fear and pain that comes in a bad uh, delivery is almost utterly neutralized. That is a shocking thing that's happened in the last 100 years. All of human history, you know, there was this, and then science, and we did an epidural, and we've neutralized in some way the threat. Moreover, after Erin or any other woman comes out of the hospital, she's handed um, a bottle, and that bottle has things like Norco, Vicodin, um, really a lot of fun. uh, you know i'm not i don't want to suggest that you just do it for fun but if you do wow i mean crazy stuff the painkillers that we do now literally they completely alter your state of mind it's wild if you think if you think that uh, that painkillers are not um are not drugs you, like like bad drugs you're crazy cuz they completely change everything about the way you experience the world i mean something like Xanax uh when i was uh, for a long time i dealt with a lot of anxiety and you know Xanax it it utterly stops your natural responses so that you're at complete peace. Pain. The pain of childbearing, we've, by science, have said no. Uh, I want to suggest at the second that she's going to have a desire for her man. The man shall rule over her. Uh, this is the quote I wanted to get to. Uh, God made uh, men and women, but Samuel Colt made them equal. Samuel Colt, he invented the handgun, the Colt handgun, Right? No, seriously, I'm not making this up. Okay, seriously. So you're, you're a woman all the way up until the advent of firearms. You are constantly under threat because you're physically unable to resist if some mean, nasty dude decides to come and ruin your life. The advent of the handgun changes that utterly. But it's not just the handgun. I mean, there's so many other things that are going on. Um, contraception. In the, in the first world west, no fault d- divorce. Um, abortion. Abortion. Um, a modernized economy that allows women to have a basically equal earning power, or in the case of my wife, greater earning power, than the man she's with. <laughs> the, the idea that a man shall rule over you has been, in the last 100 years, 150 if you count the guns, Perry's, Perry's in the bag, she's like, yes, good for women. Uh, yeah, no, not, not good for women, okay, whatever, yeah. Um, it's dramatically changed the the relationship between the sexes. It is utterly different now than it was before because the basic uh, inequalities, a number of them have been addressed by what? New technologies. Uh, For Adam, I mean, when was the last time it was really hard for you to get food? Um, We live in a, a time of Complete abundance. We live in a time where most of our experience is so completely divorced from the actual work that that it takes to create food that we we consume without even thinking about it. The issue for us is not whether or not we can eat. The issue for us is, what do I feel like tonight? And this this causes a lot of dissension in marriages and in friendships. Like, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? I don't care. But secretly I want this, but I have to figure it out. It's a fun game we play. I mean, agribusiness, technological advances in construction, architecture, have completely, almost, not completely, but have almost utterly neutralized, almost completely neutralized the threat and the pain and the toil of basic provision here in the first world in the West. Now, of course, I should say it's not all perfect. Obviously, there's still pain in childbirth. I'm not saying fa- childbirth is fun. I saw it. It was horrible. Um, I'm not suggesting that there's no disparity between the sexes. There obviously is. It's still very difficult for men and women to get along. I don't want to suggest that there's no uh, difficulty with getting uh, food and shelter. Obviously, in the third world, it's still, um, they're still constantly worried about what you'll, what you'll eat. And to and, and be honest, even here, mountain lions still sometimes kill hikers. You guys made it. Good job. Um, there is danger out there. It's not like we've completely neutralized it. But I want to suggest to you that we definitely have altered our human life in the last 100 years. And we've done it because of technology. Uh, technology. Technology is, um, it's in your note sheets here. It's any human craft, idea, or tool that gives us increased Power to complete our goals that 's any human craft, idea, or tool that gives us increased power to complete our goals now te- technological advance used to be really slow, like so that you could have things like the, the Stone Age or the Bronze Age. Um, I suggest to you it 's really weird; scientists now actually make up metals as they go along. we have new ones that have never been that nature didn 't provide. We can now create them with atoms and whatnot. And you got to start to think. I mean, imagine, let's just imagine for a second that maybe you're not influenced by Scripture. Maybe you're just sort of going along in life. You've got to wonder, is there any limit to what technology can do? You're confronted with this story, maybe, the story um, where God has consequences for disobedience. You're like, ah, oh, we fixed it. You know, And you're thinking, is there any limit to what we can accomplish? And, and, and let's just say, for the sake of argument, that there's not. Um, is there any reason that we shouldn't just do whatever we like? What is what, Should there be any inherent limit on how we use technology? Brian, do you have a little video clip for us?
1: Maybe, like, the lights could go off. I, yeah. I'd like to finish up with one more story, a beautiful story. The story of Adrian Hoslett Davis. Adrian lost her left leg in the Boston terrorist attack. I met Adrian when this photo was taken at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. Adrian is a dancer, a ballroom dancer. Adrian breathes and lives dance. It is her expression. It is her art form. Naturally, when she lost her limb in the Boston terrorist attack, she wanted to return to the dance floor. After meeting her and driving home in my car, I thought, I'm an MIT professor. I have resources. Let's build her a bionic limb to enable her to go back to her life of dance brought in uh, MIT scientists with expertise in prosthetics, robotics, machine learning, and biomechanics. And over a 200-day research period, we studied dance. We brought in dancers with biological limbs, and we studied how do they move, what forces do they apply on the dance floor. We took those data and we put forth fundamental principles of dance, reflexive dance capability, and we embedded that intelligence into the bionic limb. Bionics is not only about making people stronger and faster. Our expression, our humanity, can be embedded into electromechanics. It was 3.5 seconds between the bomb blast and the Boston terrorist attack. and 3.5 seconds, the criminals and cowards took Adrian off the dance floor. In 200 days, we put her back. We will not be intimidated, brought down, diminished, conquered, or stopped by acts of violence. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please allow me to introduce Adrienne Hoslett Davis, her first performance since the attack. She's dancing with Christian Leitner. not well appreciated, but over half of the world's population suffers from some form of cognitive, emotional, sensory, or motor condition. And because of poor technology, too often conditions result in disability and a poor quality of life. Basic levels of physiological function should be a part of our human rights. Every person should have the right to live life without disability, if they so choose. The right to live life without severe depression, the right to see a loved one in the case of seeing impaired, or the right to walk or to dance in the case of limb paralysis or limb amputation. As a society, we can achieve these human rights if we accept the proposition that humans are not disabled. A person can never be broken. Our built environment, our technologies are broken and disabled. We, the people, need not accept our limitations but can transcend disability through technological innovation. Indeed, through fundamental advances in Bionics in this century, we will set the technological foundation for an enhanced human experience, and we will end disability.
0: Wow. Um, that, that's been called the, the greatest um, TED talk. Of all the TED talks, they're um, talks by people who are in the know, who knows, know what's happening, and kind of updating normal folks like us about what's possible. And Hugh Herr, I mean, you notice that he also is a double amputee. If you notice the, the guy, the MIT professor, he lost both of his legs in a rock climbing accident uh, back in the '90s, and that sort of put him on a path. To develop these technologies, unless you think um, that anything up there was a trick, no, they've actually figured out how your bionic hands, when you when you think about it, close it closes. I mean, they've done it, like it happens. And not only that, they've also got proof of concept where you can touch a bionic finger and feel it. Proof of concept happens; it's happened. But what really interests me about that... I mean, the first time I saw that clip, I was worried that she was going to fall over. Uh, because I, I, I saw something that could not be... Could not, it was impossible. It couldn't happen. And so I was worried that the technology would fail, because how could it? How could it succeed? But as I've watched the clip a number of times, what really has begun to fascinate me is the philosophy that Hugh Herr espouses. At the most basic level, he believes that our bodies, down to the last neuron, are our own. And we should have the right to do with them whatever we like. He says we'll end disability, and that sounds amazing. Um, I mean, if someone blows my arm off, I'll be the first to, to sign up um, for that technology. But as you listen to what he says, and as you see what they've done, you start to realize that disability is literally that. It's literally whatever human beings are not able to do. Anything. It has nothing to do with necessarily repairing or restoring uh, some power that we've lost. It, in fact, has to do with augmenting power that we've never had. So one of the technologies that they have, the proof of concept that's been done, is they've given soldiers exoskeletons, robotic exoskeletons, that allow them full movement, and a lot like an avatar, uh, it gives them extra power. And so they're able to run without stopping for 60 miles. What they find is that when they're done running... The soldiers can't stand up when they take the suits off because their muscles have forgotten how to hold them. I saw um, pictures from a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer rally um, in Phoenix when they were talking about some law about whether or not, I think it was transgendered people can use um, the opposite-sex bathroom. And the shirt, the t-shirt of the activist, said, quote, self-made man, indicating that the person had been born biologically female, and then by the incredible power of gender reassignment surgery, had become a man, had been given male parts. And you start to wonder, what is the philosophy that underlies what's going on with Hugh Herr and the MIT scientists? And I would suggest to you is rampant, and not just rampant, it's majority, really, at this point, um, amongst our cultural and cognitive elites, academia and those who live um, in the urban centers, so the power centers of our country. They're what we call futurists. Um, and what they think they're doing is they're bringing about the new Jerusalem. They imagine a world with no limits, with no... Uh, Disability, in the full meaning of that term, what they imagine is a world that's free from sorrow, it's freed from pain, it's freed from anything that holds us back. It's, it's a world of utter and continuous pleasure with diversions and entertainments as far as the eye can see, so that, yes, we're never bored. And I want to suggest to you, number one, that that's insane. And number two, that it always ends in blood and fire when human beings go down this road, because we've done it a number of times. Um, And it always ends up with, you know, holocausts and um, the great leap forward. Um, And I want to suggest to you that what we call the curse in Genesis is not a curse at all, it's a blessing. It was a blessing that was given to, to human beings by God. It was a blessing that forced us to remember we're not godlets, We're creatures. It forced us to remember that we're not in charge, that we're not the ones who make our own destiny. It forced us to remember that no matter how much we wish we were, we'll never truly be self-made men and women. Well, uh, I noted before that, you know, God doesn't say that you can't try to overcome, you know, the problems with the curse, the so-called curse. Um, That, you know, I I stand by that. I think that it's perfectly good that we come up with new ways to, you know, come up with crops and and, and feeding people um, that we can, I mean, in no way am I suggesting that that wasn't absolutely beautiful. I mean, what she was able to do, what she is able to do because of technological advances What I want to suggest to you, though, is that there's a difference between harnessing the power of technology to aid us in our goals and becoming gods or godlets. I want to suggest to you that our relationship to technology must fundamentally be characterized by cultivating creatureliness. We must remember that we are creatures. And that becomes harder and harder and harder to do the farther and farther we get away from the restraints that have naturally been placed on human beings. It gets harder and harder to do as we become more and more powerful, more and more able to control everything that goes on around us. And... Honestly, at this point, we have to make practices. We have to make a conscious decision and invoke in our lives practices, institute things that we do to remind us. Because if we don't, we will forget. God will be pushed out and pushed out and pushed out to the point that God's not there at all, as he's not in the case of Hugh Herr. We're out of time, so let me give you four. And these are just ideas. And I, I want to suggest you, I don't have time to do it uh, because we're, we're out, but um, I, I want to suggest to you that these ideas really come from the Lord's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against them. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory. Amen. I want to suggest to you that embedded in that is an idea that we're creatures and God's up there. And the practices that we can institute in our lives today, four of them, that will remind us. Number one in your note sheet, reintroduce risk. Reintroduce risk. Now, when I say risk, I don't mean go to Vegas, bet your life savings on the Pacers to beat the Heat, in this series, because A, it's not going to happen, and, and B, that's um, maybe too much risk. When I say risk, though, I mean reestablish in your life what? Projects in which you have, don't have total control. Projects that can fail. That could be as simple as putting together a five-course meal for your family. I often do this, and I often fail. I tend to over-season. That's my problem. I'm like, oh boy, Lowry seasoning salt. Just keep it going. It could be as complicated as switching careers, pouring yourself into a creative project that just might be beyond your skills. But don't be passive consumers. Don't just go along comfortable, set in your ways. Not everything's provided for you. No, create. Creativity always involves risk. And that will remind you that you're dependent. Reintroduce risk. Number two, gravitate towards gratefulness. Gravitate towards gratefulness. Now we always say it. I, you know, we sit down to dinner and we pray, "Dear God, thank you for this food." Really, thank you for this food. Seriously, a couple of weeks ago, Neil taught us how it is that our bread gets from you know wherever it is, the bread tree, I guess, and then ends up on our table. So someone has to go and pick the bread from the bread tree and then bring it to our table. Is that right? Is that how it works? Probably not. But the idea is think about that process. Think about how it is that what you have got to you. And thank God for that. Because in every step in that process, there has been abundant grace. God has made everything possible for us to have, 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 have. They, they say that um, we're two days we're two days away from uh, the zombie apocalypse. And what I mean by that is that um, it takes about two days before all of the resources in a modern city in the United States of America dry up in the case of catastrophic failure. If we have a a breakdown of our semi-trucks and our trains and our planes, it will take two days before we're all starving. Think about that. Every day, you get up and expect your bread, and yet every day, you are two days away, two graceless days away from starting to kill people to get what you want, well, maybe not that. Paul Ehrlich, we talked about him. He he's back. He population bomb well in the sixties. Now he says we're going to turn into cannibals because uh, the population doesn't matter. All right. So number two, gravitate towards grace, gratefulness. Number three, create space for grace. Create space for grace. Technology, by its very nature, shields us from discomfort. But here's the thing. Grace is when God, by God's initiative, unexpectedly and undeservedly lavishes gifts on us. But when our lives are under complete control, complete technological control, there's no space for grace to intervene because it's all set up for us. We control it all. We have to have space in life for God's graces to enter in. Shake up your routine with times of silence, no distraction. Put aside, seriously, put aside an hour. I don't want to do this because I think it would be terrible, just exhausting, but an hour to eat with your family. Hour is a long time. I think we'd probably run out of conversation topics in like five minutes. But that's the thing. You create space, and then God's gracious gift might intercede, and something beautiful might happen. It might not. But the idea is there's a place that's not under control, that you don't have technological mastery over what's going on create space for grace. Number four, develop discipline. Develop discipline. And by disciplines, I mean the classical spiritual disciplines. Fasting, Sabbath-keeping, prayer, feasting. One of the reasons we have a hard time understanding Scripture, and I, a lot of you have come up to me and said, I would love it when you talk about you know, the, the culture of the time or whatever. And one of the reasons that's interesting to us is because we are, by the way that we live our lives, so totally far from the sitz and laban, the life situation of people in a primitive culture or the, first, uh, the uh, first, an- first century ancient Near East. Well, if we begin practices that they practiced, we'll be a little bit closer. We'll be able to see what life is like. We'll remind ourselves that having this thing and that thing is not the be-all, end-all. We'll find that uh, it produces addiction and dependence that we're not dependent on. We don't depend on smartphones and menus filled with choices. We're dependent, as Jesus said, not on bread, but on the word of God. Develop disciplines of fasting, Sabbath, prayer, feasting. When you do those things, you set yourself into a rhythm of life that is more in keeping with God's vision for human life. And it's not constant distraction and constant consumption. We're really out of time now. I'm sorry, Perry. I tried to keep it to 11.30, but here I am. Um, here's the thing. Here's what I want you to take away. We're cultivating creatureliness. And the last and most important point is this. We tend to think that, the, that technology by itself is you know, neutral, value independent. What I want to suggest to you is that every technological choice we make is laden, it is fraught with life change. The patterns of your life dramatically change from, when, from the time that human beings can get fire, to the time they have a hammer, to the time they make the wheel, to the time of Stone Age, Bronze Age, when they get to the point where they have smartphones. The, the addition of every technological innovation radically changes the patterns of life that we experience. Be wise when you think about your relationship to technology, what you adopt and what you don't, how you treat it, because it is going to change your life. And if you're not careful... You will become so consumed with walking that you decide that it is a human right to control the entire universe. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we will remember we are creatures. We'll remember that what you did in the Garden of Eden was to protect us, was to remind us of our relationship to you and to the world We pray, God, that we will be present in mind as we respond to an age, a world that is radically technological, a world that tempts us to usurp your role. God, we pray that we will be people who resist that temptation, who instead engage in practices that remind us that we're your creatures. In your son's name we pray, amen.